We're in part three, friends, of a series of entitled Jesus, the source of our lives. He is the source. I got to thinking this week because I had the, the title of this message is What's the Rush? It was very appropriate because I spent for the first time in my life since I was a teenager 18 hours in bed one day. By the time I got up, got out of one side of the bed, walked around, came the other side of the bed, I was as wet and dripping as if I played my 22 year old athletic son three hard rounds of squash. I was just drenched. Some kind solid decided to share the flu with me, as some of you have experienced that lately. So slowing down was quite the message for me this week. Everybody's in a hurry. Notice that? Everybody's multitasking. You get to the doctor's surgery where you think people will be calmed down. And what are people doing? Phone, texting, Facebook. There's not a minute to sit still. Let me ask you a very honest question. How many of you, like me, have received a speeding ticket? Can I see your hands? Okay. Okay, so I feel very comfortable about this message this morning. Watch the rush. The world is getting faster. USA Today, I was just reading, said this. I quote, this is a secular newspaper. Today, people are souped up, stressed out, and overscheduled. In this brave new world, boundaries between work and family are blurred and disappearing. Everybody is mobile. Every moment is jam-packed. Daycare, school, after-school activities, and 10 and 11 and 12-hour workdays for some folks. Now, the Bible tells us something very instructive. Jesus told us how to live, how to live our lives as well, very, very practically. And one of the things he says is hurry and worry and scurry have very deleterious negative effects on your life and my life especially the most important relationship of all with God so quickly I want to look at a few effects from the Bible of a hurried lifestyle and you may have experienced these like I have the first one is when I run at speed when I'm rushed I lose my joy anybody want to give a testimony of that one? Huh? I lose it the Bible says this my days go by faster than a runner quick we're always saying how fast it is we're on your way back to summer thank the Lord and life is going by quickly but my days go by faster than a runner they fly they fly away without me seeing any joy in other words things are going really quickly but I'm losing my joy not about you, but I ever feel like, where has the time gone? Where's my week gone? I can't believe it's Friday. And it's already here. Now, I've noticed something too, another interesting phenomenon. When I drive through a new uh, through a town, even my own hometown, Howick, and I drive through, I miss so many details. But I, if I really want to enjoy a town, I walk through it, a village or a city, and I notice so many more details. Ever notice that? You think, oh, I didn't even realize that was there before. The fact is, if your life is just constant pressure, fast, 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 you're not going to enjoy anything, and it's easy to lose your joy. Second effect of a hurried lifestyle, this is important, is I lose my productivity. I lose my productivity. 
In fact, I'm less productive when I go fast. And every creative person knows this. It's hard to be creative in a rush. You have the law of diminishing returns, and you need to pace yourself. There are times when you have to go fast, and there are times when you have to go slow. I did a series on that not so long ago. You cannot stay fast all the time. In other words, hard on all the time. You need time to slow down and plan and it's then you start to get more creative. Otherwise, you lose your creative and then you're less productive. The Bible says the plans of the diligent, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to, posit- um, to poverty. So in other words, you have to pace yourself. When I'm running at high speed, the third effect is this. And this is a very serious one. I can't hear God. I cannot hear God when I'm going at pace. If you're moving at a fast pace all the time in your life, it is very difficult to hear God. You get to know God when you hear Him. And how? You get to know and hear God when you become quiet and you become still. Notice this next verse and notice how the two concepts are connected in this verse, 46.10. Be still. Not be in a rush. Be still. There's the first concept. And, joined to this, know that I am God. Be still. When you're not still, when all your circuits are busy, when you've got God on call waiting, hang on God, I'm just in the middle of something. I'm in a meeting, can I get back to you? The first half of the verse goes with the second half of the verse. Be still and know that I am God. See, if you're not still, you'll never get to know God. I want to share with you five thoughts for today to slow down your lifestyle to a more rational, reasonable, responsible, and most importantly, biblical pace. A biblical pace. So that you can reconnect with God. So these are five countercultural biblical values that you and I need to get down to slow your pace. The first one is to learn contentment. If you are serious about slowing down your life, you do not start with your schedule. You start in the heart. If you're serious. This will prevent you from doing window dressing. Oh, I'm not going to this appointment. Okay. And I'm not going to do that activity. Okay. But that's really just window dressing. That's fiddling around the edges. To get to the heart of the issue, to sort it properly, you've got to get to the heart. Now, this is what Paul says about contentment. He says in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances. Now, notice he says, I have learned. You and I, by nature, are not contented people. We're always looking for more. You are not and neither am I, by our normal nature. So how do you do this? Paul says, also says that godliness, notice, with contentment, with godliness, one thing, with, conjunction, contentment is two. 
is of great gain. In other words, it's a valuable thing if you're godly and contented at the same time. For we brought nothing into the world, the Bible says, and we can take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. 1 Timothy 6, 7 through 8. So what he's saying there, what he's trying to communicate to you and I in East Auckland today, tomorrow, is life, friends, is not about things. Never forget that. It is not about things. I didn't have anything before I was born, and I ain't going to have anything after I die. And neither are you. Now let me explain what contentment is not. Just let it be misquoted. Contentment is not having no ambition. You need to have ambition. But that needs a bit of contextualization too. You need to have some personal ambition and some godly ambition as well. Actually, God says, having ambition for my kingdom shows that you are my follower. So stop right there. Question, have you got ambition for God's kingdom? Or is it for the kingdom of Ian? Or the kingdom of Graham? What is your ambition for? The kingdom of Bronte. It's good to have some of that, but the main thing is seek first God's kingdom. Where Do you have ambition for God's kingdom? Or was it created out by my own personal agenda? Contentment means this. I don't need any more to be happy. <laughs> you might want to write that down. Because you know why? I can stand here without batting an eyelid and take any one of you on this one. You are filthy rich. Filthy rich compared to the rest of this world. And some of you in this room know that because you've been there. Contentment means I have dreams and I have goals, but I don't need more to be happy. That's contentment. Now, if you're not content, check your motivations. Because that's what keeps pushing you forward for the incessant drive for more and bigger and better and faster. And that's very deleterious to your spiritual life. What keeps you going fast? Why? Good question. Do you have to have more? Why do you have to have more money in the bank? Why do you have to have more achievements in your career? Why do you have to have more activities in your schedule? Now I've noticed that the world's culture associates success with speed. That's the world's culture. That is not what Jesus says. The world also believes the myth that having more will make me more happy. No, you have to ensure more, you have to maintain more, tidy more, um, uh, get a bigger house for the more, and then if that's not big enough, you buy a storage unit, or hire a storage unit for more. Now, that's what the world believes, having more will make me happy, but notice what Jesus says, which is the exact opposite. Jesus said it like this, these are his words, a man's life consists not in the abundance of the things he possesses. He said that's false thinking. That is a myth. He's batting against the world. The greatest things in life aren't things. It's not about valuables and it's not about possessions. That's why he said, get this clear in your head. 
He said, if you don't get that wrong, it's going to dry. If you think it's all about things, you're going to be pursuing all of it and giving your entire life to that stuff. And the Bible says this, do not wear yourselves out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show constraint or restraint. So if you buy into the myth of having more will make you more happy, it will wear you out, it will keep you up at night, and it will keep you from being contented. The Bible says many persons pierce themselves with many a pang pursuing this. Jesus says your life is not about your possessions. The second myth that our culture promotes is that not only having more, but doing more will make me more valuable. If I just do more, some of you are in this boat right now. Then I'll be more worthy. In other words, if I do more, people will love me more. They'll think, what a swell guy. (laughs) What a nice person I am because I'm doing more. I'll be more valued, especially at work. I'll be more appreciated. And there's there's a hidden agenda behind that. I'll be more admired. So I will prove my worth by my work. And if you get your work and your worth confused, if you get those confused, you're going to be running at a fast pace your entire life. And you'll be stressed out your entire life. But the Bible says this in Ecclesiastes 4, 6, to bat against that worldly thinking, it is better to have only a little with peace of mind than to be busy all the time with both hands or both spouses <laughs> trying to catch the wind. <laughs> Something you can't actually take with you. You can feel the effect of it, but you can't actually grab it and capture it. So what? let me just interpret that for East Auckland. It might be smarter for you and your young people to buy a very small home and live at a very less a lower level, lesser level of material lifestyle in order to have more time and more energy. I was very blessed. My wife never wanted me gone every hour that God sent you. Honey, I would rather live. And we bought our first place was a little two-bedroom unit with green carpet and red wallpaper. God! It was a shocker! But we could afford it on one. Now, I know it's different. But on a, it wasn't stressing us out. That was the point. And no, we didn't have a microwave. And no, we didn't have a washing machine at first. And yes, I caught a bus to work. Because it, was, it just wasn't worth it back then. It might be smarter to live less so you have more time. More, this is a word that you, energy. A lot of people I talk to are absolutely exhausted these days. More enjoyment in life. More time to be concerned about the things of the kingdom rather than the stuff that we gather and then we toss out and then the organic rubbish so we can have more peace of mind. In East Auckland, we go out and we buy houses that we can't afford, then both husband and wife hustle and hassle all the time to make the payments. And what they're actually doing is they are exchanging their life for these things. That is a serious trade. Because life is not about things. Different if it was, but it's not. Maybe, again, a little more peace of mind, a little more affordable, having more time. I heard some politicians saying the the other day, well, I just put kids off, put put kids off, put kids off. 
can't afford it? Yeah, well, I'd say, well, how about go somewhere, do something different, live less, and have kids sooner? If you don't have time for kids, don't have them. So, having more doesn't make me more happy. Doing more doesn't make me more worthy. And the third method that culture promotes on us is life. And this is an insidious one. Be careful of this one. It tells you that life is a competition. Competition with your brother. Competition with your neighbor. Competition with your peer at work. The fact is, you're not in competition with anybody. Not your neighbor. Certainly not your boss or your friends. Why? Why isn't life a competition? I'll tell you why. Because you are absolutely unique. God made you unique. With a unique set of gifts and a unique set of opportunities. Snowflakes don't compete. When you learn that God made you unique, it takes a lot of stress off you. Because you quit trying to be like everybody else. You can just relax in who you are. You don't have to look like them. You don't have to dress like them. You don't have to um, live like them. You can just be yourself. In fact, the more that you know your identity is in Christ, the freer and the more confident you are to be who you are, the way he made you to be. Now, when, though, on the other hand, you start to compare with other people, that creates something I've seen in many families, envy and jealousy and sometimes just flat out discouragement I could never do what they've done you're not supposed to do what they've done God will never say why weren't you like them I'll say what did you do with what I put in your hands just you and then the other side is people who compare they either get some get discouraged and other people get well I'm doing better than Joe and they've got this sense of pride. And one thing we have to be very careful of is God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So comparing and contentment are mortal enemies. Every time you start comparing anything in your life, your boyfriend, your teeth, your house, your car, your job, immediately start comparing you're either a, a, a potential victim for pride I'm better or discouragement I could never if you're serious about slowing down your heart you've got to start where in the where in the heart if you can serious about um, reducing the pace of your life you've got to start in the heart then you can start to become contented. And once you start being contented, you can actually start to slow down and living a sane, reasonable human life. The Bible says this, a great verse I love, a relaxed attitude lengthens a man's life. This week, another lady went to be with the Lord. She had millions in the bank, helped another thing. She lost her marbles, unfortunately, about eight years ago, in six months. Went from a saying as you and me, boom. This life is very unpredictable. What I am saying though, is if you're serious about slowing down, you need to start in the heart. And it doesn't come by just clearing your calendar. That's not going to do it, because guess what's going to happen? I guarantee you to stand there and watch that calendar, and it'll start to self-populate fairly quickly <laughs> with different events. You've got to sort it in the heart first. It become, 
Yeah. But becoming content with who you are, that's the first thing. Once you've got this, step one, there's a very countercultural, then you're going to look to the next one. You move from your heart to your mouth. Move from the heart to the mouth. You, the second countercultural thing, you must listen before speaking. Second strategy from God's word for slowing down. Now, when you watch TV or listen to some talk shows, have you noticed how many times people interrupt each other? Ooh. My wife doesn't like that. We've become a nation of interrupters. And people don't let others even complete their sentences. They just talk over the top of each other. Why is that? Because the speed of life, in the speed of life we operate, we become very impatient. And we're unwilling to let other people finish their thought. So we butt in. Now, everybody does this, and it's something that every one of us needs to work on. Especially if you're having a spat with your spouse or one of your children. Let them finish. Now, the Bible says this. In James 1.19, here's a good practical verse to apply here. Everyone, that's every one of us here, should be quick to listen. In other words, zip it. Slow to speak. Don't be so trigger happy. Building your defense and slow to become angry. A couple of things. Again, I've said this many times before, but if you have an anger problem, the antidote to your anger is in that verse. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and the third thing will follow. Therefore, I guarantee you, you'll be slow to anger if you do the first two things. There'll be less friction and there'll be more peace in your life. The Bible also says this, don't be quick with your mouth. This one's got a different principle lying behind it. So don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God, or could I put in brackets, the principle you'll see soon is also with men. God's in heaven and earth, so let your words be few. In other words, be careful you don't just blithely um, commit to things without thinking about them. Be careful what you say. They can snare you. Words can powerfully snare you. And the principle here is you need to watch your words and be slow to speak. Consider carefully what you're saying. Proverbs 29, 20 says this, Do you see a man who speaks in haste? In other words, up. In other words, you open your mouth up before you engage the mind. There is more hope for a fool than him. That's how serious the Bible wants us to take our words. David even says this. He says, Lord, I'm pretty bad at this, he says. He says, could you please put a guard like at the, at the city gate by my mouth so that before it goes out, it gets, you know, it's, it's got authority to go out. Could you help me with this one? I need some help. So once you get the heart and the mouth slow down, once you've done those two things, then you are ready for the third thing. And then you work on your calendar. And this comes to the biblical principle of obey the fourth commandment. The Bible is filled with instructions in living the kind of life God made us to live, and it's not the way the world says. In Exodus 20 verse 9, one of the ten, the big ten, is about rest. You think, good night. doesn't sound very spiritual, but it is. You have six days to which do you work, but the seventh is a day of rest dedicated to finishing the jobs. No. Dedicated to doing the stuff I didn't get done the rest of the week. No. 
did they add to me God says rest is so important the way I have designed you your creator it's like when you get a motor mower the first thing it says is start it run it for about 10 minutes and then tip the oil out drain it and put some brand new oil on you don't do that you will pay the consequences because the manufacturer knows there are little bits of shavings there and he knows more about that motor mower than you do in the same way God knows more about the way he designed you take some rest that's why it's called a Sabbath which literally means a day of rest God rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but he wanted to give us an example to follow. Now, the French ones tried to sack that idea because God had seven days, right? They tried to make the week just after the French Revolution into ten days. But the health of the nation collapsed, so they sacked it and went back to seven. Go read it. It's all history. It's really easy to violate this one, especially, friends, if you own your own business. It's easy to think, well, if I just put one more day into this, I'll pour some more time, I'll get more of it. I'll just do it for a while. And what you do on the Sabbath can end up just being a catch-up for everything else. Meanwhile, on the other hand, what God wants you to do is do three things. He wants you to rest your body. He wants to recharge your emotions. And he wants you to refocus on God. Three things he wants you to do on your Sabbath. A, rest your body. If you don't take time off, your body's going to take time off. In other words, your best requires rest. It really does. B, you need to recharge your emotions. Do something you enjoy. Life isn't meant to just be endured. God wants us to enjoy it as well. Some sort of re recreation that rejuvenates you. Now, some of you in this room are workaholics. And you say, well, I feel guilty when I relax. Okay, I accept that. But here's a counterpoint. Jesus didn't. And he's our model, not you. Jesus is our model. Do something that rejuvenates you. Then see, very important on that Sabbath, which is in, contained in that verse in Exodus, re refocus my spirit on God, not on my painting or whatever else I need to do. There's a word for that in the Bible. It's called worship. Worship is another word for refocusing my spirit on God. Worship puts my life into perspective that no other game of squash or golf or shooting or whatever else you do for a hobby can fix. Nothing will do that. Worship puts life into perspective. The Sabbath gives me time to put my life in perspective, remembering how great God really is. And I need time to be alone with God. Now, if your to-do list leaves no time for God, you, my friend, are just too busy. I can get so busy that I miss the most important thing that I was made to do. And I'm missing out on the life that God made me to live. So, to counterbalance that once every seven days... I like to think of it like this. You and I can eat, pick a bit here, pick a bit there during the week, almost like fast food. But on the Sabbath, you have a smorgasbord. And you can sit and you can relax and you can have a good feed in the Word of God and rejuvenate your spirit. Now to do this, I have to schedule this. It doesn't happen automatically. Anybody agree with that? If it's not my calendar, it doesn't happen. I have to remind myself of this. And the Bible says it is vain for you to rise up early 
and to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. So take a day of rest. Now these are countercultural choices that Jesus clearly teaches. One, learn contentment. Stop the constant push for more. Two, then work on your mouth. What you say, be careful of your commitments. Don't be so quick to say yes. Then three, obey the fourth commandment. Four, pause and pray before deciding. Now talk about the decisions you have to make on a regular basis. When I say pause and pray, it does not mean this. Well, I've got a decision to make, so I'll wait for a year and just pause. I'm talking about 10, 15 seconds sometimes. You may be in a boardroom and you're in a really sticky negotiation and you're really not quite sure what's the right, right way to go or what to hold on to, what to hold out for. Maybe you're talking to your kids and you shoot up a quick prayer. God, is there anything you want me to say right now? Talk to him in the moment. God, help me to make the right decision now as you're going. You don't say, <clears throat> excuse me, I just need to go and pray for a minute. That's not what I'm talking about here. You keep your eyes wide open and you look that client directly in the eye and you can still pray. They shouldn't see you blink. Today, everybody wants to know how to make decisions faster in business. I've seen all the seminars coming through. Friend, it is not that important. 50 years from today, they're not going to be saying, did Graham make fast decisions? They are going to be saying, did he make wise decisions? Did he make kingdom honoring decisions? So please don't use this, oh, I'm praying about it as a cop out or an excuse for flat out procrastination. Some of you have been praying about decisions for years or months that um, should have actually taken you no more than two or three minutes. So you think about it, you pray about it, and then you do it. Now notice this verse. Enthusiasm without knowledge is not good. So you can be as enthusiastic as you like, but without knowledge that comes from God, it's not good. Impatience will get you into trouble. I don't know about you, but in, in the States, the, the freeways are unbelievably complex in some places. And often my wife and I have been in Chicago somewhere. And in those days, we didn't have GPSs. And the eyes, the interstates look like a number one as well if you're going past at about you know, 120 Ks. So it's very hard to see the difference. And you can be, and you miss the exit. And let me tell you, six lanes across, and you can't just go, yeah, way out there. And you should have been way over there. And, you know, you've got to drive 25 miles down the freeway until you can turn around and somehow get back on. You can miss it, get stuck in traffic. My point is this. God has signs all the time for you. And he speaks to you through circumstances, through other people, through the word of God, through your husband, through the, your wife, through the church. And God says, if you listen to me in advance, that I could have told you. That business idea is a dead idea. And don't think you're going to be there forever. You won't be there forever. I've only got you there for a short season. So then you won't be disappointed. 
There's a lot of things God says, I want to help you, but you've got to pray and you've got to pause, not just rush headlong in. Proverbs 19.2 in God's Word translation says this, a person in a hurry makes mistakes. I don't know about you, but have you ever had the wonderful not experience of redoing work because you're in a hurry the first time you didn't do it very well? Anybody ever done that? Boy. So praying and pausing will save you a lot of heartache. It combats impatience and it helps you from making impulsive commitments. Now, so what is God saying? He's saying this. Ponder before promising. Deliberate before deciding. He's saying muse before you choose and reflect before you select. That's what he's saying. Consider your careful uh, your commitments very carefully before you decide. And that'll help slow down your life. And just because I can do something doesn't mean you say you should do something. One of my mentors says to me this, don't tell me what new things you're doing. Tell me what you stopped doing. You can get so many eyes in the fire, you can actually put the fire out. So let's be honest. How many of you have a hard time saying no to opportunities? We see this all the time in sales. When we see opportunities, we want to go for it, but you've got to manage those opportunities. Or they'll manage you. Here's what you do when you've got a lot of opportunities on your plate. Three things you can do. The first thing you need to really be really crystal clear about is, is this worth it? Is this worth my time? Is this worth my energy? My effort? Actually, my life. And you can only answer that question if you know what your goals are in life. Is this going to help me get towards this for God? And every time you give yourself to an activity, you are exchanging your life for it that you will never get back. One of the ways I often use to try and clarify things is, will this matter in five to ten years from now? And the ultimate question is this. This will really get it clear. Will this really matter in eternity? Because there's a bunch of stuff that won't. There's a lot of things that we give our lives to next week that will not matter. So how do I know if it's worth it or not? The Bible says this. If any of you needs wisdom to know what to do, you should ask God. And if you just ask that one question, God, when I get to heaven, see yourself there. Well, what I've just done there really have helped you and your kingdom. That'll bring some clarity. So you pray and ask God, is it worth it? Second, what am I going to have to give up in order to do this new thing? It's not just I'll just add more on. You need to be clear about that. Otherwise your plate gets so full, things start falling off and then you lose all credibility. How many of you in this room, let me just see your hands one more time, because I asked this a while ago, but some new people here. How many of you make regular to-do lists? Can I see your hands? About three quarters of you. Okay. I want to suggest to you something to write down. Today, start a not-to-do list. You will save yourself so much more time with a don't to do than a to-do list because to do just keep growing and when you do that you're saying I'd rather have my time for this this is more important to me now if that you thought was interesting this will challenge you 
So a to-do list, you're familiar with. A not-to-do list, you're starting to become familiar with what it sounds like, but this is pivotal, and most people never do this. You need to make a third list, and this will help everything be clear. A what matters most in my life list. What matters most in my life list? If you don't know what matters most in your life, other people will decide for you, and the opportunities will become bamboozling. Then if the opportunity comes along, you go, where's my what's most important in life to do list? Doesn't help those? No. Make sense? You've got a standard to which to measure, and it makes life a lot more simple. If you don't have a what matters most list, you are going to end up being manipulated by family, friends, and others. And you need to ask God what matters most to you. So when you know, is it worth it? And what I'm going to, uh, what am I going to give up? Then the third thing to say, and this is a, again a great skill to learn, especially young people, you need to learn when to say no. My Spanish friend says, Kiwis wear watches, but Hispanics have time. I like that. Kiwis have watches, but Hispanics have time. I'd suggest to you to try going on an activity diet. Intentionally slow down. The fifth and the last thing, and we'll wrap this up, is trust God's timing. You learn contentment. You listen before speaking. You obey the fourth commandment. You pause before, uh, pause and pray before deciding. And if you're serious about slowing down your life, you've got to trust God's timing. If discontent is one cause of hurry in my life, if it is, then the other one is impatience. That causes hurry. You know what impatience is? It's a lack of trust. Even Abraham fell, that, fell for that one. God had promised him a son through which he blessed the whole world. But as we know, he got a little impatient, right? And he did it with Ishmael via Hagar. And that's why we have today the whole Arab-Israeli conflict to this day. Impatience has consequences. The Bible says, on the other hand, Ecclesiastes 3.10, God does everything just right and on time. He's never late. Circle that. But people can never completely understand what he's doing. Of course not. He's God. So God has a plan and a timetable also for your life. But here is the deal that probably no pastor's told you before. God really explains his timetable. He'll give you an idea of what's coming up, no question. But he will often not give you the exact timetable. One day, for example, when the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, when are you coming back to earth? Second coming stuff. You get a whole bunch of people that focus on this. And they get a fetish about it. And all they do is read about the second coming, the second coming. The second coming is going to happen. But I want you to notice the situation here, which is instructive to you and I. Lord, when are you coming back to earth? And Jesus said the most amazingly shocking statement. He said this, it's none of your business. What? That's what he said. Don't believe me? Look at this. 
He actually says in Acts 1.7, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons. He says, none of your business. He said, don't worry about that. Don't even get, come, do not get sidetracked on that red herring. That's what he's saying to them. But he says, but instead you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the whole earth. They want to talk about prophecy and future events and God said, get on with evangelism now. And if you're really interested in Jesus coming back, here's what he really said. You'll pick this up here. And the gospel, this gospel, shall be preached into all the world, to every nation, that's ethnic, every people group, and then the end shall come. Wow, look at that. And then the end shall come. So work backwards. You want to read the scripture biblically? Read that one backwards. It says here, then the end will come, okay? Well, how does it come? Well, first of all, the gospel's going to be preached to the whole world. The whole world. So are we getting on with this? Or are we getting some intellectual trip out of the second coming? Jesus said, forget that. That's in the Father's hands. You get on with the job of evangelism. See, God's timing is perfect. This is a good verse that encouraged Kimberly and I. These things I plan won't happen right away. Slowly, steadily, and surely as the time approaches when the vision will be fulfilled, if it seems slowly, wait patiently. For surely it will take place. It will not be delayed. Now maybe there's a God-given plan that is given to you that hasn't fully happened yet. It's coming. It's on God's timetable. You've just got to learn to trust the Lord. Slow down. And whilst you're waiting, learn from the Israelites. Don't complain. Trust Him. Let's pray.